Welcome back to QAV. This is episode, I don't know, what is this episode? This would be 550. And uh, I'm recording this on the 20th of December, 2022. It's that time of the year when Tony's back down at Cape Shank. He's playing a lot of golf. Uh, I like to give him a couple of weeks off so he doesn't need to think about QAV for a couple of weeks. There's not uh, many questions coming in from our QAV club members this time of the year. I guess people are busy finishing up work and school holidays and uh, going away, whatever they're doing, getting ready for Christmas. Um, So uh, what I tend to do is a bit of a compilation for a week or two. And, um, you know, I was not really sure what to focus on this year. I think last year I focused on iron ore and uh, its travails over the course of the year. This has obviously been a bit of a tricky year for investing market uh, started to correct in April as a result of, among other things, the war in Ukraine. And uh, there's been the whole COVID thing in China and everywhere else and supply chain issues and um, all those sorts of things, labor shortages, interest rate rises around the world, fears of global recessions. But what I decided to focus on was um, Tony's history of doing pulled porks. So we joke a bit on the show that when Tony does a pulled pork, it puts the kibosh on a stock because <laughs> they tend to, it seems anyway, that sometimes they crash after he does a pulled pork on them. So I thought I would go back in time, jump in the TARDIS and have a look at some of the stocks that he did pulled porks on at the beginning of 2022 to see how they fared over the course of the year. Am I imagining it, the uh, curse of the pulled pork kibosh? Or uh, is there some legitimacy to uh, Tony's dark magical powers? So that's what I'm going to do this week and maybe next week. So this first clip is from QAV 500. This is an episode that we put out at the beginning of 2022, January 5th, 2022, first week of January. And Tony is doing a pull pork on CIA, Champion Iron. And on the 5th of January, the price of Champion Iron was around $5.68. Well, I actually prepared to do CIA Champion Iron today as their pulled pork, <laughs> which people can refer to as last week's stock of the week if, if you want. Oh, you're going to do a pulled pork? Okay. Yeah. About four years ago, three or four years ago, they bought a, a mine called Bloom Lake and did a good deal on that. The prior owner had spent a lot of money upgrading it and then um, decided to divest it and sell it. The thing about this particular iron ore mine, and they do have a couple of other ones operating in Canada, but Bloom Lake is the main game for them. It's it's an iron ore producer that produces very high quality iron ore. It's um, among the highest quality in the world which is important from uh, reducing emissions side of things. So as Champion Iron positions itself as, as the, I guess, the way of the future for iron ore mining. And as we know, um, steel production is a big carbon emitter. One way that the, that the steel industry is reducing emissions is they're moving across to electric arc furnaces. Instead of using the, the normal coal-powered blast furnace, it still does use coal, but it uses high-quality coal. So you can't do electric heart furnaces with low quality coal like Fortescue Metals Group produces. And so as steel companies try and reduce their emissions, they move across to these 
different type of furnace, which needs a high grade of iron ore. So that's the sort of um, value proposition for this company. They also trumpet the fact that because they're in Canada and a lot of the electricity in Canada is is either hydro or nuclear, they're also a low emission miner as well in their own neck of the woods. So that's that's kind of their value proposition. Going through the numbers, it's uh, scoring well for us. Average daily turnover is 8.3 million, so it's a large cap company. Share price that I used in this analysis is $5.44, and that's the 4th of January I'm, I'm recording this. That share price of 544 is less than the consensus price target for this um, or valuation for this company. Its financial health is strong and steady in stock, Doctor. Again, we don't use ROE in our checklist, but just for people who are interested, it's 77%, which is quite high. And uh, what we do use is a price to operate in cash flow or prop cash, which is only 3.3 times. And the PE is only 4.3, so it's certainly a value stock for us. Even though it's an overseas miner and there's currency risk, um, operating in Canada wouldn't have much sovereign risk, I wouldn't think. But um, not sure why the the uh, prop cap is so low on this one. The price is also less than IV1 and less than half of IV2, so it scores well on both those metrics. The forecast growth in earnings per share is down slightly, down 18%. So we get a minus one for that because if you put the, the um, growth over the PE, it's, it's negative. There's no yield, so we don't score for that. Directors are holding 10% of the company, so we're scoring it for that. It's a, in terms of the manually entered data, it's the lowest PE for the last six halves, so it scores well for that. It's increasing net equity, so it scores well for that. All in all, it's a quality score of 92%, which is high, and uh, a QAV score of 0.28. And uh, it's up 3% since it was our stock of the week last week, so good on you, uh, CIA. Good call last week, Tony. <laughs> so how did CIA do after Tony did the pulled pork? You know, I'm always joking that the kiss, pulled pork is sort of the kiss of death for stocks in our portfolio. If we own them and then Tony does a pulled pork, they often... Crash. Well, as I said, 5th of January, it was about $5.68. Uh, it uh, had a good run up until, ooh, you know, even, well, you know, the market started to tank in April. I mean, the 4th of April, it was up around $8, $8.06 on the 4th of April, which is uh, quite a good run over the first few months of the year. Sort of uh, by the 8th of June, it was still at $7.76. And then I guess iron crashed and it fell down to $4.50 in August. Stayed down there sort of through to September. But in the last uh, month, like in December, it's shot back up. It's now around about $7 uh, today as I record this on the 20th of December. So... You know, if you'd held it from $5.60 through to today and not even sold it, you'd, you'd still be doing okay. It did uh, have a rough patch there for a few months and we probably would have sold it when iron ore became a sell. And even if we hadn't, it would have probably breached some one of its own selling conditions, but uh, it has recovered. What is next in the uh, historical pulled porks, I wonder? Ah, yes. So episode 501, we put out on January 18th, 2002. And Tony's pulled pork for this one was the ANZ. Now, if I go and have a look at the ANZ share price back in uh, uh, January, it was tracking around 
on the 18th, uh, yeah, 28.75. So let's see what Tony had to say about ANZ. All right, stock of the week. ANZ. Never heard of them. Who are they, Tony? What what, what is this thing you call (laughs) ANZ? Australian New Zealand Banking Group. And everyone will know who ANZ is if you're an Australian listener or a New Zealand listener. One of the big four. Couple of things that uh, people may may have missed if they weren't reading the Fin Review over Christmas. There is some speculation around that the, I guess, well respected CEO, Mr. Elliott, may retire in 2022. He will have been there, I think, for six or seven years by then. He was brought in. I think he may have been the CFO, Shane Elliott. Uh, Shane Elliott. I think it's Shane Elliott. Before taking on the CEO role, then spent most of his early tenure unraveling the prior CEO's expansion into Asia, which um, had some mixed success. So uh, he, he brought a lot of that capital back where it was earning a better return in the Australian franchises. And then during the uh, Hain Commission, I think probably you know, out of the CEOs of the banks probably did okay or the best in terms of, you know, he always was very quite um, humble and was listening to what the what Mr. Hain was saying rather than, um, which was not always the case with some of the bank CEOs who, in some and chair, chair people who, who sometimes got a bit bolshy with um, the Hain Royal Commission, much to their uh, detriment. I guess that's by the by. A CEO change can cause volatility in a company's share price, and, and this could all be nine months down the track, but I do raise it as probably one of the impending issues for ANZ. It can cause the share price to be volatile for a couple of reasons. If they promote from within, then chances are the people who were on the list and thought they may have got the gig, may get upset and leave, which could cause some reorganisations in the management, if not the business units. But if they employ someone from outside, that could have a surprise effect, good or bad, on the stock price. Um, most times good, but can go either way. But either way, whether they employ from within or from without, oftentimes a new CEO We'll spend the first sort of three months working out how to best position the company for themselves. And I'm being a bit cynical here, but I've often seen a new CEO come in and take lots of write downs, blame it on the last guy and really clean up the balance sheet so that they can put a floor under their options going forward and make sure they make the most money out of all their incentives. That's probably their only opportunity to uh, clean decks, if you like, and um, shake out the skeletons and take all the provisioning that that the um, last guy may not have wanted to because it would have affected the share price. So the share prices can often go down soon after a CEO is replaced, but not always. So just an observation and something to be aware of if you're thinking of investing in ANZ. The business itself, I mean, it's one of the big four banks. Every one of the big four banks really has a specialty, uh, like a strength compared to the others. And in ANZ's cases, there's a couple. They are the biggest New Zealand bank, which is a, a big money spinner for them. They are big in credit cards and always have been, mainly because of the Qantas Frequent Flyer program, which they've been linked to for a long time. So they're, they're a couple of strengths, and their strength is still in the Asia-Pacific region, particularly the Pacific region. So they still have uh, probably a bigger market share in certain jurisdictions overseas than um, their competitors. So they're the strengths of ANZ. I think it's coming onto our buy list now, probably because it's the cheapest of the of the big four banks. Certainly on a P ratio basis, it's the lowest of the big four. 
and I'll get into the numbers in a minute. But I raise this because there's been like a, I guess, a shorthand way of investing in banks on the ASX for a long time. And that's basically just to invest in the, in the bank with the lowest PE ratio. And uh, that way you're always kind of buying the bank with the biggest value. And as it sort of cycles up in share price and the PE raises, you sell it and you buy something else with the lowest PE because big four banks are um, not a whole lot of differentiation between them. So in some respects, it doesn't matter which one you buy, but relatively it does. And and the, buying the cheapest PE has always been a good sort of way to invest in the banks and, and really in the ASX in general going forward. There, there are these sort of shorthand ways that the experienced operators get to know over time, doing things like what they call pairs trade. So if you industry like banking, if you like the, if you want to buy the bank with the lowest PE, then you, you might want to short the bank with the highest PE. And so you benefit from um, that cyclical sort of re-rating of stocks. And, and the highest PE bank is ComBank at the moment. And there's a question coming up later on about ComBank went down in the last quarter. And I think probably one of the reasons for that is because it's the highest PE of the banks. And so people do kind of trade out of the high PE bank into the low PE bank. Yeah, so that's by the by. But again, like buying listed investment companies when there's a gap to their NPA, like buying uh, the top 20 stock, which has the biggest gap between its um, current share price and its uh, IV2. They're, they're all kind of shorthand ways of investing, especially if you don't have much time to look at it. And buying the bank with the lowest P is another one of those. Anyway, that's, uh, I guess, um, background information for the numbers. And I'm doing my analysis based on a the download I did on Sunday when the price was $28.40. The buy price at that time is $28.10. But as I said, last time I had a look, it was about a, a cent or two below that. So if it doesn't turn up again, this might be a moot exercise, but still worth doing, I think, just to run through the numbers on ANZ. It'll probably come back on the buy list, I would think. The other thing to mention about the big four banks and is their yield, and ANZ is no exception. So it's currently yielding 5.06%. And uh, it's fully franked. And if you gross that up, it's 7.23%. So if you're a retiree with a million dollars and want to live off the income, putting it into ANZ means you'll you'll pick up $72,000 a year after tax, especially if you're in a like a self-managed super fund where you're getting a full rebate for the franking credit. So the big four banks traditionally have been well supported by retirees and it's probably still going on today, I would think, based on those numbers. To go through the numbers, ANZ is a large average daily transaction stock, as you'd expect, $134 million is traded on average every day in it. So it's so very, very big. Its QAV score is uh, 0.36. So that's also quite high, for, especially for a large cap stock. And uh, it'll be getting pretty close to the top of our buy list uh, with that kind of score. And a, a quality score of only 64% though, and that's probably the, the area of, to focus in on. To go through the numbers, it's slightly under the consensus target. So that gets a one for us. It's a borderline star growth stock in Stock Doctor and it's a star income stock. So both of those score 0.5 in our checklist. So it gets a score of one for those two combined. It does have strong financial health as you'd expect and it's been steady for a while. So that's they're both good things for our checklist. As I said before, it's the lowest of the, the PEs for the big bank. It's PE is 12 or 12 and a half. I think Westpac is just slightly higher than that at around 13, but then ComBank is up around 20. So it's, they're a good, both ANZ and Westpac are a long way behind 
ComBank, and I think MAB has the highest at the moment, but that's probably a bit anomalous. Its PE is well over 100, so it's probably just been going through a, a, some write-downs which are affecting its earnings. But I haven't looked at NAB for a while, so I can't really say. The reason why it's coming up well for us at the moment, though, is its prop cap is 1.81. So it's um, its price to operating cash flow is 1.81, which is very cheap. So even though its quality score is only 64%, it scores well for us because of its value dimension. The current share price, however, is greater than our IV1, but it's less than our IV2. So it does score a point for that. It's trading around book value, which is very interesting for a big company like this. So net equity per share is $22.81 and book plus 30 is not $29.66. And with a share price in the sort of low 28s, we can buy this for less than 30% plus book. So this would be something on the Warren Buffett radar screen if he was investing in Australia, I would think. On the negative side of things, though, the, the analysts are predicting a decrease in earnings per share of 5% next year. So that scores a minus one for us. And again, that's a prediction. So who knows how that will play out, but um, that's what they're predicting. The yield, as I said before, is good, certainly above the bank rate. It's the old uh, adage of investing in Australia is don't put your money in the bank, buy their stock instead, because the yield is much higher than the, the um, term deposit rate from the bank itself. So um, yield scores well for us. And uh, it did, as I said, it did cross over on the weekend and gets a point for a new upturn. That'll have to lose. We'll lose that point, though, if it does continue to stay below its buy line, obviously. Equity in the bank is not consistently growing, though, so it doesn't score for that. And it's not the lowest P in the last three years, so it doesn't score for that either. And obviously, it doesn't have an owner founder. The bank was founded over 100 years ago, so no score for that. So quality score is only 9 out of 14, which is not the highest, but certainly gets onto our buy list because of the um, price to operating cash flow. So that's the numbers for ANZ. A couple of other thoughts about the business itself, and and again, this is um, getting into the the story and the issues rather than the numbers, but just for some thought starters for people who are thinking of investing. If you look at the share price graph for ANZ, it's pretty much completed its recovery from the COVID cough. And that's where all the big gains were made in the Australian banks. And uh, it's back to sort of that same trend line that was before the original COVID downturn in March a couple of years ago. And it's on a sort of gently sloping decline. So it'll be interesting to see what the share price does from here, whether it sticks to that trend or whether it does um, continue with its up, upturn. And Omicron obviously may still cause it problems. I suspect with the large increases in property prices, especially home property prices in the last 12 months or so, there should be a reducing stress on the loan book for ANZ. And you would think, you know, again, who knows with COVID what comes around the corner, but you'd think that reducing stress on the loan book is always a good thing for a bank and they'll probably take lower provisions for bad and doubtful debts and potentially even start to write some of those back from their current balance sheet. So we may see some improvement from here just based on that alone. So that's that's ANZ Bank, Cam. All righty. Yeah, well, I, I just checked the blog post I did for it on Monday. I did say that it could drop back below its sell line, not the buy line, but yeah, it's dropped. I, I don't know how far it is from its sell line today, but it was just above that too. So, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, they're pretty close. They're both very similar at the moment in terms of price. Yeah. So, how did the pulled pork kibosh go on ANZ? Well, as I said, on the 18th of January, it was trading at 28.75. It uh, immediately crashed down to about 26.53 over the next week or two. 
So that's no good. Went back up to 28, dropped back down in March to 25, went back up to 28. And then, of course, by the time the big market correction happened in April, it started to slide. It went all the way down to $21.60 on the 15th of June and has been sort of recovering slowly ever since. As of today, 20th of December, it's at 23.81. So... You know, if you'd bought it at 28, uh, you would have got rid of it. it. It didn't have a good year, ANZ. I'm not sure that's completely our fault, but, uh, you know, we have we have an enormous amount of power, of course, over the way that these stocks do. But uh, so, you know, there's also global economic factors that play into that as well. As well. So ANZ looked good um, on paper, hasn't had a very good year on the stock market. Well, episode 502, which came out a week later, I think this one was more about 18th, 19th of January. Um, the last one would have been a week earlier. Uh, Tony did a pull pork on Beach Energy, Beach Petroleum, whatever it was called back then, BPT. Can't remember when it changed its name. Now, BPT back at the end of January, so the 18th of January, was uh, trading at uh, around about $1.45. So let's see what happened after uh, Tony did his magic. Beach Energy, BPT, another one that we've seen come and go on a regular basis. Yeah, so I'm going to make that my pulled pork if I can do that now. So um, as you alluded to, it's been on the buy list in the past and it's back on now. The couple of things, I guess, is background for it. The oil price has been increasing recently and that's not unusual this time of year because it's the northern winter. So they're kind of the flip side of what we are in summer. So in summer, our power stations work around the clock because everyone's turning on their aircon units. But in winter, we don't need much heating. But uh, in Europe, it's the reverse. So in winter, the power stations crank up because everyone's trying to heat their homes. And getting less and less these days, but certainly over the last couple of decades, uh, a lot of the homes were being heated by burning fuel oil by a type of oil, like a low-grade oil. And so the oil prices in the northern winter generally go up. So it could be short-term, but it's also being supported by another thing that's going on, a macro trend, which is the fact that because uh, oil is on the nose in terms of the ESG investors and even to the point where they pressure the banks these days not to lend to oil companies to try and reduce the carbon footprint of the world. And I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but there's been less, much less exploration in new oil discoveries in the last couple of years than is normal. And so it's one of the reasons why the oil price is going up because the existing producers um, have less competition. A couple of other factors too, like uh, in the Northern Hemisphere winter, because oil is, uh, when it's being drilled, it often goes through reserves of water and, and pulls out water as well. It freezes and uh, the water if it freezes on the drilling rigs, can shut them down for long periods of time. And so that's happening. And there was apparently some kind of cold spell in Texas, which is unusual, but the oil rigs froze there. So uh, they've been out of the market for a while. So lots of things are going on to sort of keep the oil price elevated, which all plays into a good story for stocks like Beach Energy. They're also a, a natural gas explorer and producer. Natural gas is a funny one because it's actually better to power a power plant using natural gas and it is to use coal, but the ESG people still say they're both bad. But there has been a 
And there is still is an ongoing conversion of coal power plants to uh, to natural gas. So that's also supporting the price. And and oftentimes contracts for the gas are tied to the oil price, so they tend to go in lockstep. But both of those commodity graphs are um, are going up. So that's the background to Beach. We have a couple of things about Beach Energy. One of the reasons why it came off the buy list last time was because they had a surprise downgrade. They eventually got round to telling the market that they didn't have as much oil reserves under the ground in their oil fields as they'd stated in the past. So that caused the price to crash. I guess that's now baked into the share price. So the fact that it's turning up again is taking that into account. A couple of other things though, the MD resigned unexpectedly at the end of last year. So we need to be cognizant of that. I don't think they've appointed anyone yet. There's an acting, the CFO is an acting MD. So that's another risk, I guess, to the stock. The last sort of background story to the stock is that the Stokes family through their seven group company owns about 30% of the stock. That can be a good thing and a bad thing. If you look at what they did with Borrell, I guess in the short term, it's good. I don't know how it'll play out in the long term. But what they have a track record of doing with other companies as well is buying a, a stake that gets them a seat on the board and then using what's called the creep provision to be able to buy more stock without launching a takeover, a formal takeover. So one of the problems with a company like Beach, if it has a large shareholder on the base is that it makes it less attractive for someone to launch a takeover bid. So even though the price crashed and the fundamentals were still strong and the oil price is rising and there has been merger and acquisition activity going on in the Australian oil and gas scene, it makes it hard for someone to launch a takeover bid for something like Beach Energy. So that takes that kind of upswing in the share price potential out of the stock. So that's an issue. And then if, if the seven group keeps creeping up on the register without launching a takeover, then uh, they'll get to a stage where they'll effectively control the company. That can be good and bad. There's a, a case in the past where it's been bad, where the seven group then use their control to buy other assets they owned at prices that uh, were probably unrealistic compared to what you get in the market. And so the, the company became stuffed with assets and eventually I think it eventually went broke. I won't talk about which company that was because I don't want to be litigated against, but that's essentially what happened. And uh, But in the other case of Borrell, it seems to have worked out for shareholders because uh, they did exert enough pressure to turn around the company. And um, so that's working out there. So it can be good or bad. So I know I'm sitting on the fence with the Stokes owning 30% of beach energy, but it is something to watch and just be, be aware that it can have positive and negative implications for the company. That all aside... I guess we just go straight to the numbers. That's pretty much it. I was going to talk about the oil price a bit further and say that as the oil price rises, there's been some stories in the press saying that some analysts are saying oil could reach $200 a barrel. It's now sitting around 80-odd in, in the 80s a barrel. So a long way, a lot, a lot of upside. And they're basing that analysis around the fact that, um, well, like I said before, less exploration going on, ESG squeezing on, producers being able to explore and, and therefore the existing people should be able to command a bigger margin for what's left. And that's there's some certain truth about that. However, in the last decade or so, both Russia and the US have acted as kind of valves against the oil price going too high because there are shale oil producers in the US who lie, lie dormant until the oil price gets up around $100 a barrel and then they come back on because they can make money at $100 a barrel. And so they almost become like a pressure valve for the oil price getting too high. And Russia's a bit the same. So they've done a deal now with OPEC to throw in with the cartel in terms of 
trying to regulate the price and keep the margin up, but they also have a history of going rogue and uh, when, they, when they need to, selling lots of oil, which brings money to them, but, but drops the price in the market. So they're the two, I guess, issues around the oil price. To me, all that summed up says that I think $100 is about the natural limit in this market to the oil price, but it's a prediction it could be wrong. Anyway, QAV by the numbers are quite good for this company. I'm using a share price of $1.40, which is less than the consensus target for Beach Energy. So that's a, a score of um, one for us. It is a low yield company. And I, I guess I, I question why it even has a yield. I think it's about 1.5%. I expect the answer is so that they can release some of the franking credits on the balance sheet. They've been paying tax on their earnings and they, they can release some of that back as a credit to their shareholders, they don't want to pay a whole heap in yield because they do want to put money back into exploring for oil and developing their own oil and gas fields. So that's probably why it's about 1.5%. Financial health is strong and steady. Prop cap on this one currently is 4.2 times, so makes a good value stock for us. The price is slightly higher than IV1, less than IV2, and less than two times IV2. So it gets a, a couple of points on the checklist for those things. Net equity per share is around $1.35. And as I said before, the share price is $1.40. So it's trading around its book price and certainly less than book plus 30%, which is a, a good uh, test for us in terms of value. So it gets a point for that. The interesting thing is that the, the analysts are forecasting earnings per share growth of 60% on this company. So they're certainly seeing, I guess, the analysts are bullish on the oil price. And they're certainly probably also bullish on Beach Energy getting its shit together. So um, that's probably why it's uh, forecast growth so high. But it means it's got the growth over PE metric that we look at is quite strong. It's greater than five times, which is very strong. Stock Doctor is stating that directors' holdings are only 1.79%, which is a bit misleading because the Stokes family have, as I said before, 30% via their seven group company. And the, the seven group company has uh, at least one director on the board, maybe even two. So um, that's a bit misleading. But if I overwrite the spreadsheet and give that a, a one, it doesn't change the QAV score very much. So I haven't. I've left it, left it down. But people may want to do that. It gets a zero for the lowest P of the last six halves. It's, it's almost that, but it's not. It gets a one for a new upturn because, as I said before, it was um, crashing last year. It's just been turning around since its last results were out. It gets a one for consistently increasing equity. So total score is 12 out of 14 for quality, which is 86%, which is good. And if you add the Stokes um, shareholding back, it's 13 out of 14, which is even better. QAV score of 0.2 and 0.22 if you add the, the Stokes score back in. So, yeah, for a large cap stock, it's certainly scoring well for us. Well, BPT, not such a bad year. Honestly, we know that uh, oil has had a bit of a topsy-turvy year. It's had its ups and its downs, but uh, largely because of the war in Ukraine, I think, and global supply chain issues, it's uh, done pretty well. So as I said, BPT, 18th, 19th of January, was trading around $1.45, went pretty steadily up through to June when it peaked at $1.88. It's not a bad run. Then it came back and went up and came back and went way up to $1.90 on the 5th of December, but it's fallen, as I think oil has fallen in the last couple of weeks, currently at $1.62. So again, no uh, pulled pork kibosh for BPT. It had a pretty good run. So well done, TK, on that one. What's next? 
Rio, Rio Tinto, another mining stock. Uh, we recorded episode 503 around about the 26th of January, at which time Rio was trading around about $107.08. So let's see what Tony had to say about them at the time. All right. So stocks of the week this week, uh, which I chose yesterday morning, Monday morning, were RVR and RIO, two miners. Uh, both looked okay at the time, but lots happened in the last 24 hours. Of course, as I tell I tell people every week when I put out the stocks of the week, you know, check them for a Josephine before you do anything because a lot can change, particularly in a turbulent market like this. And uh, you emailed me this morning and said that RVR has in fact become a Josephine since then. Yeah, it was down like 15% today last time I had a look. So something's going on there. Yikes. Yeah, small cap minus. I don't know much about it. So I'm going to focus on Rio for the pulled pork. Rio Tinto. Never heard of them. What do they do, Tony? <laughs> well, it's kind of surprising because they, they shot themselves in the foot a lot in the last 12 months. They've been in the use, which is not what you not for all the good reasons. But anyway, Rio, Rio Tinto, big miner, one of the big cap stock on the ASX. Largely iron ore. Iron ore makes up 76% of its revenues, but it also has some copper, bauxite, aluminium, or aluminia, alumina, sorry, I'll get the pronunciation right, diamonds and titanium oxide. So it has diversified a bit and has had some good news in the papers recently in the last day or so. So they've been trying for a long time to sort out a copper mine called OU Tolgai. I hope I pronounced that right because I've never heard it mentioned, I've only read it, in um, Mongolia. And uh, just in the last day or so, it looks like they may have sorted out their problems with the Mongolian government and the old OU Tolgoi copper mine will go ahead, which is a big deal for Rio and and, um, will boost the amount of copper that they have in their mix. So that that may change things for us. I mean, the mine won't happen, won't get started for a while and won't happen for a while. So not not a short-term issue, but that's another. If if copper does become a big part of Rio, we'll have to reassess whether we treat it as an iron ore stock or a copper stock or both. So at the moment, it's predominantly iron ore. Last year, it mined itself in controversy. It blew up an Aboriginal or a First Nations sacred site in a place called Jukang Gorge which was a terrible thing to, to take place and seemed like management were at sixes and sevens in dealing with it. And it, eventually it claimed the scalp of the old CEO and the CFO has been promoted now to, uh, to running the company. So a lot of things going on with Rio Tinto, more than you'd want to see in a, a big blue chip miner, but um, things might be turning around. It came back onto our buy list recently. So it scores a, a point for that. It's a recent three-point upturn after going off when iron ore stocks dropped, but also it was also a three-point trend sell, probably because of the Jukon Gorge controversy. Today, the share price is $1.6.9, so almost $1.7, so 25th of January. And it is just slightly under the consensus target, so it scores a point for that, for share price. It's a star income stock, and it scores half a point for that the stock doctor. And the reason why it's a star income stock is because, well, one of the reasons is because it has a yield of eight, 8.5%. So that's, that's very high and certainly above the bank rate. So it scores a one for that. Financial health is strong and steady as you'd expect from a, a really big large cap company like this. So it scores for those. For people who are interested, the ROE is 35%. Uh, and the prop calf, the, the um, price to operating cash flow is 56 
time. So that's uh, it's getting up there, but um, it's still, you know, when you consider it to be a large cap stock on the ASX, it's still very cheap. PE is seven, which is not a record low for the last six halves, so it doesn't score for that, but still a low PE. And the interesting thing with, with this company is that the PE is less than the yield. So that's always been a, a low value indicator to me or a great uh, value buy indicator to me. Never heard anyone else talk about it, but certainly something I've observed over my years in the stock market. So it gets a point for that on our, our QAV score list. It's uh, less than its IV2. It's just above its IV1 and it's less than two times its IV2. So it scores at one point for each of those. It's got a high growth profile. So growth over PE is three times, which is twice what we want to see to get onto our checklist. And it scores a two for growth. As I said before, it's a new three-point upturn. Uh, even though it's been a buy for a long time, it did come off the list at the end of last year. Equity has been bouncing around a bit, so it doesn't get a, a score for that. So overall, the, the quality side of things, 83%. And the QAV total, when we, we take into account the prop cap is 0.15. Given it's got an average daily trade of 117 million, it's certainly one that would fit every investor's criteria. Very good. Thank you, TK. Rio, do you know uh, how it ended up in Australia? Yeah, I think it's a British miner. It may even be dual listed, and people might be aware of that because they've seen BHP repatriate back to Australia, which has been in the headlines or the financial headlines recently. I think it was because of CRA, a company it bought in WA, which was a big miner over here of, of iron ore, and and that was kind of a turning point for, for Rio, probably about 20, 30 years ago from memory. Yeah. Co-Zinc Rio Tinto of Australia. I did a sort of a history on it when I was picking it as the stock of the week yesterday. It's um, named after the river in Spain, which has been mined for minerals for 5,000 years, the Rio Tinto. And when the Spanish monarchy sold the rights to mine on the Rio River in 1873, the rights were purchased by a consortium led by the Scottish industrialist Hugh Matheson, famous for Jardine Matheson. And the company soon, I think by the end of the 1880s, was in the hands of the Rothschild family. And then there was a series of acquisitions and mergers over the next century. And then in 1962, Rio Tinto Company merged with Consolidated Zinc, which was an Australian firm, to form the Rio Tinto Zinc Corporation, RTZ, and its main subsidiary was ConZinc Rio Tinto of Australia, CRA, and then in 1995, the company's merged into a dual-listed company run by single management. So there you go. That's my short history of Rio Tinto. I've always wondered, with a name like that, how did it end up listed in Australia? So uh, did some background. Well, not too bad for Rio this year. Uh, as I said, towards the uh, late January, it's trading around 100 I know ten, eleven dollars went up to uh, one twenty-seven on the third of March. So that was a good run. Then it fell, went back up, fell, went back up. Then after sort of April, really from June, it started declining heavily as oil plummeted. Uh, fell down to as low as eighty-seven dollars in uh, late September. Then it started to wedge its way back up. It's up around one hundred and fourteen now. So. 
If you'd bought and held uh, all the way through since late January, it made a little bit on it, but um, obviously with we would have sold as the oil price became a sell, uh, oil as a commodity became a sell, if not the stock's own. Uh, we would have real wondered or 3PTL'd it probably along the way. But it's uh, recovered and hasn't had too bad a year, I guess. Episode 504, 2nd of February, Tony did a pulled pork on WLD. Now, WLD at the time uh, was Traces Wellard Limited, um, sort of beginning of February, trading around 11 and a half cents. I wonder how they went after the pulled pork. All right, very, very quickly. I think there was only one stock that we liked this week. I think there was two that went out in the email, but. One was uh, ALG, which uh, is Ardent Leisure Group. And I was looking forward to doing that one as a pulled pork because it's got such a controversial history. But I had a look at it again today. It's a bit of a Josephine. I think even though I think month on month it was flat, but it's come off its highs like everything else has in the last few months. But people might want to be aware of it. It's um, Ardent Leisure Group is at the bottom of our buy list with a QAV of 0.1, but it, it's just made an appearance for the first time. It's actually not a Josephine today, according to Stock Doctor. Oh. Finished the end of last month at $1.35, and it's $1.36 today. Yeah, right. But I think if you look at the last sort of couple of months, it's down, isn't it? Oh, if you go back to September, it's uh, down, yeah. But it's picked. It's turned around. It's picked back up since. Yeah, well, maybe, let's have a look at it next week. Maybe that'll be our Stock of the Week next week. But I did uh, pull Wellard apart, and WLD is the small cap. You pull Wellard? What? <laughs> Paul Wellard. No, pulled Wellard oh, apart. Right. Okay. WLD, which is our small cap stock of the week, and it's very small. ADT's, uh, I think, about $8,000 a day, so that's pretty tiny. We did talk about it once before, and just in a brief potted history of Wellard. It's a live cattle exporter. It did suffer terribly when live export was banned from Australia well, probably about 10 years ago, but it's it's been able to rebuild itself. It still does a lot of, of cattle exporting, but it also has an abattoir. It also does other things in that sort of supply chain for, I, I say cattle, but it does also do live sheep and goats and all sorts of livestock overseas as well. Anyway, so it's a, it's a cattle exporter really and, and plays a part in the supply chain once the uh, livestock leaves the farm. So quickly, it's... One of the highlights that has happened to it recently is that it just got a $12 million payout after a couple of years of court action and arbitration because uh, it had made payments to a shipbuilder in Serbia which didn't finish the boat. And so it's been trying to collect back on the insurance and back on the payments it made and recently had $12 million awarded to it, which is a big deal for this company. So I'm assuming that uh, the, the recent upturn in the share price is probably in anticipation of what they do with that cash. But uh, again, small cap stock, it's uh, 11 cents when I did my analysis this morning, 58 million market cap. Stock doctor isn't reporting a consensus target, but the download is. And in the past, I've been told that that's because they like to see, I think, two or three stockbrokers cover it before they put a consensus target on the front page. But if one one stockbroker covers it, they do put it in the filter. So we do have um, someone covering it and it's just below, sorry, 10% above their target price. It doesn't have a yield, so it doesn't score there. The financial health is what really carries the day for this this stock. It's both strong 
and recovering. So it gets extra points for recovering. And I guess the bad financial health would have been when it was battling the live export ban. So that's recovering. Some interesting numbers, low ROE of only 4%, but it does have um, very low price to operating cash flow of four times as well. Interestingly enough, it has a PE of 23, which suggests to me that it's a low margin business, high cash flow, low profit. It doesn't because we don't have um, the broker's coverage. It doesn't have an IV2. And I actually like that in stocks, even though it's um, this one's way too small for me to invest in. I like to get ahead of the other analysts and ride the stock up in price until it does come on the radar of some of the um, fund managers who might want to cover it. So it's good. No IV2, I've said. The net equity per share is about the share price, but less than book plus 30%, so it scores for that. doesn't have very high director holdings, so it doesn't score there. It does have a record low PE, even though it's so high. As at the last results, it was a PE of 16, which was the lowest in six halves, but really there was only PE for three halves, so not too hard to do that, but does score for that. Equity is bouncing around, so it doesn't get an increasing equity score. All up, quality score of 90%, QAB score of 0.22, and the underlying commodity, which I've used um, beef cattle for, has been going up, so it's another positive for this stock. And I know that when I was looking at it yesterday for the newsletter, I noticed that when we talked about it a year or so ago, it had a qualified audit, but I pulled up the latest report and that seems to have gone. Yes, correct. Because they thanks for that. got a ton of cash, I guess. <laughs> well, as I said, Wellard back in uh, early February, trading around about 11 and a half cents, did not go so well after Tony's pulled pork immediately started declining and just kept declining and kept declining and kept declining right down to the end of October when it hit six cents, dropped by nearly 50% over the course of the year, has started to recover a little bit since then. Today, it's around about eight cents, still a long way from the 11 odd cents it was when Tony did his pulled pork. So... Uh, not a not a good win uh, for us that one. Well, I think the last one we'll do on this episode is from episode five hundred five, ninth of February. Tony did a pull pork on CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. They've had a they've had a corky year. Oh no, hold on, wrong CCP. Um, this is, of course, uh, the Credit Corp Group of Australia. Uh, sort of February, they were trading around $32.65 around the 9th of February. Let's see what Tony had to say about the, the other CCP. If they have doubts, but yeah, do it scientifically, definitely. Tony encourages people to have a fiddle. Let's talk about your stock of the week, Tony. What did you say your drill down was going to be? I'm going to do a pull pork on Credit Corp. CCP. Yeah, just to run through the numbers quickly. So, and the reason for doing it, um, only, not only is it the first cab off the rank in terms of QAV stocks, but when we mentioned that, I think it was last week, in last week's show, the, the results came out and the share price went up like 9%, I think. And it's come back down again. So I, I did want to drill down into the numbers and make sure there was, um, there was nothing too worrying there. And it's not, but it is at the very bottom of our buy list now. So there, there has been... I think probably we are lessening a bit in the quality score and maybe a rising in the price, but just to run through it. And by background, Credit Corp's been on our buy list for a long time. It's been a good stock. I've owned it for decades. I think I sold it during the G, I had to sell it during the GFC, but otherwise I've held it for a very long time. 
it basically buys what they call um, debt lists of banks and credit card companies and the like. Sometimes it gets them from gas and electricity utilities. But basically, they're after banks or the sellers of these debt rolls have had uh, a first go at trying to recover the money that's outstanding, they give up and they say, well, it's going to cost us a lot to process, say, the last 20% of collections. We'd rather sell the, you cut our losses, sell the, that ledger to a company who does it um, professionally and for a living and that's all they do and has the economies of scale to, um, to make it more uh, viable for them to go after the last 20%. And that's what Credit Corp does. The reason that first attracted me to this company was I did go to a presentation at my stockbrokers many, many years ago, probably decades ago, and uh, maybe a decade ago, and um, had a good chat with the CEO. And he impressed me. And what, what impressed me about him was his, I guess, respect for the customers, probably the way to put it. So, you know, I'd made some silly joke about what size baseball bat did he take to the customers on his debt list. And he was shocked and said, they don't work that way. They work to get a relationship going with the customer. They work to try and help them budget. They work to try and help, uh, sort out their finances so they can meet the repayments. And he said they were that successful in doing that, that the company was now opening up a new division of lending those people uh, future credit because they had a good credit understanding of them, a good credit profile of those customers and had worked with them to repay the credit card debt, whatever outstanding debt there was. And they were now in much better financial shape and was therefore lendable again. And that business has grown over the years and it's now going into the US as well. So that's their sort of growth engine, I guess. So I've always liked it. I've always respected management. I think that it's, it's very good management. But to run through the numbers, which is what I was focusing on today, it's a high ADT stock. There's just over $4 million trading on average each day. So it should suit all investors. I'm using numbers from the weekend when the share price was 3193 It's a few cents higher than that today, but not much. And it's less than, it's, uh, than the, the um, consensus target for this stock, which is about $35.10. It's a borderline star stock and a star income stock. So it gets uh, half a point each for that in our checklist. I was interested to see it's a star income stock because the yield is, uh, is down to 2.3%. So I'm not sure why it's a star income stock. Usually, Stock Doctor gives that status to companies that pay a high yield. So it's possible that in the coming weeks when Stock Doctor gets the end of reporting season and, and relooks at its uh, stock status for some of these stocks, it may lose that star income stock status, but we'll see. But anyway, financial health is strong and steady, so it scores for that. The um, price to operating cash flow is just over five times, so it's starting to get up there towards our limit. And interestingly enough, the PE is 23 times, so it's a high PE stock. So even though it's throwing off lots of cash, it still has lots of costs in there as well. So that's possibly also why it's getting towards the bottom of our QAV list as well, the buy list. In both cases, it's above IV1 and IV2, so it doesn't score for valuation there. And it doesn't score in terms of its um, net equity per share, which is around $10. So it's, it's um, three times that. So it's not a buy in terms of book value. It's not uh, growing aggressively. Uh, so it is growing and the growth projection is 7%, but it doesn't meet our hurdle of, um, of one and a half times or a score of 1.5 for growth over PE. Directors aren't holding enough to qualify for a founder operator, which is a bit surprising, I thought, given that... Uh, as I said before, Thomas Parigi is, is a very good CEO. It isn't the lowest of its most recent six halves in terms of PE score, but it does have consistently increasing equity. That's probably one of the standouts for this company. 
it has been growing shareholder equity for a long time. So overall, it gets a quality score of 54%, which is quite low in terms of what we normally want to see, and a QAV score right on our borderline of 0.1. So I suspect that one of the reasons why it's been hanging around this sort of low $30 share price for a while is that it's not scoring well enough to be that attractive to people. So we'll see what happens in the future. If people want to get in, I, I mean, I still own it. I think you do, Cam. But it's, it, I think it quite possible with, with an increase in share price from here, which um, is always likely with this stock, uh, it does tend to, to creep up in terms of price. I think it might drop off our buy list fairly soon. Yes, well, CCP, yeah, didn't have a great year, let's be honest. Uh, not Tony's fault, I'm sure, but went from $32.65 in the second week of February all the way down to $16.40 on the 21st of October. So, yeah, nearly, what, a 50% drop. Uh, Res recovered a little bit, but uh, trading today, 20th of December, around $18, still a long way from $31. So what do we learn from this episode of uh, pulled porks from the beginning of the year? Well, you know, a little bit hit and miss. Um, and, you know, that's the thing about QAV as a system. Um, you know, we, we try and find companies that uh, are performing well, we try and find them, uh, we try and buy them anyway. They end up on the buy list when we think they're undervalued. We can get them at a discount. And, you know, the basic theory is that uh, they will regress to the mean, that the market will eventually wake up and uh, they're, they're, because they're generating cash, they're a well-run business, their share price will get closer to what their intrinsic value is. But, of course, in years like the one that we've just had, incredibly turbulent year for the global economy, for the stock markets around the world, all bets are off. Um, companies that on paper look really good don't necessarily perform very well during uh, you know a, a market correction and and uh, turbulent global economy. So. Uh, we laugh about the uh, kibosh, but um, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot going on there. So, you know, there, there are a lot of stocks that Tony didn't do pulled porks on this year that have done well. And our, you know, our portfolio over the year has uh, struggled, as I, I think everybody's has. But um, you know, we we believe that the the philosophy of finding businesses that are performing well, throwing off a lot of cash, but aren't trading at uh, their intrinsic value, uh, is still a an investment thesis that has stood the test of time. For well, at least since Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett started doing this thing. 70 years ago, and we believe it will continue to hold true, but there are good years and there are bad years, even when your underlying thesis is solid. Well, that's the episode for this week. Um, have a great Christmas, everybody. Um, stay safe. Uh, don't drink too many Negronis. Limit yourself to maybe five, I think, um, before Christmas lunch. And then you can have as many as you want after Christmas lunch, obviously, depending on how much you like your family. 
Um, Tony's down at Cape Shank. He'll be playing a lot of golf. Uh, we might go up to Bundaberg. We'll see. Uh, hit some beach, depending on whether or not I can be bothered driving five hours up there. Um, take care, and I'll probably be back with another compilation episode next week. And I'll see what see what happens. And um, then Tony and I'll be back in the new year. Take care, everyone, and thanks for the support this year. And by the way, if you've had a rough year, if you got started this year and it's been a rough year, uh, as we've said many times, we get it. It's tough. Um, not a great introduction to investing if uh, you're new. But unfortunately, the sad reality is there are good years and there are bad years. If you can hold on for the good years, you know, we're confident, quietly confident that the system will perform well as it always has done in the past. And, you know, Tony went through his 25-year performance history on the show a couple of weeks ago. You know how it works. Some some, uh, really bad years, some really good years, some average in-between years, but they all add up in the end. So without any more uh, jibber-jabber, I'll be back next week. Take care. QAV Podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217182. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.